So much talk coming out of the midterms about Georgia and Florida. How similar were these two races? Uh, Were they stolen? Was the state of Florida stolen? What does that mean for 2020 and Donald Trump? We're going to talk to my uh, good friend and lawyer uh, out there in Florida who worked on Andrew Gillum's campaign. His name is Kamara Williams. He's a fantastic uh, follow and friend on Facebook. You can check him out there. Uh, Kamara Williams, he's going to join us here in just a heartbeat. I thank you so much for downloading the newest episode of Be Conscious. I am Damian Barling. Uh, again, so happy that you are here. Uh, thank you for hitting the download button. If you're new to the podcast, go back, dig in the archives. Some really, really good episodes there, uh, many pertaining to politics, uh, race, race and sports, uh, some just sports, just some fantastic stuff. Gotten a lot of good feedback on the David Steele episode, the college dropout. Uh, White Fragility has actually become the most downloaded podcast so far uh, of our history here. If you haven't heard that one, I think that provided a unique perspective on race uh, coming from an older white woman uh, who has studied race her entire career. Her name is Dr. Robin D'Angelo. So go check that out uh, again in the archives. If you're new here, there's some fantastic stuff in our in our past. Uh, Karin J. Phillips, a good friend of mine as well. Uh, we've had a couple of episodes with him. I want to address something before we get to Kamara. Because this podcast launched with Howard Bryant in his book, The Heritage, in our conversations about uh, race and sports, politics and sports, and Colin Kaepernick, and you know, there's been a you know, Alex Smith had a just a a brutal and and, and tragic injury uh, in week eleven of the NFL season, uh, very reminiscent of of Joe Theismann and the uh, similarities between the injury, the day, the score of the game. It was just all very, very, very eerie. But, of course, every time a quarterback goes down, uh, especially Alex Smith in this case, it brought up the conversation about Colin Kaepernick. You saw a number of people uh, referencing Colin Kaepernick. Well, this is what Washington needs to do. You can't possibly run the rest of the season with Colt McCoy, could you? Uh, Bruce Allen, the general manager for the Washington team, um, denied no one, not a single quarterback except for Colin Kaepernick. He says, I have no interest in having him on my team. And you guys know how I feel about Colin Kaepernick, but I'm, I'm going to say this with 100% certainty. Every quarterback, all 32 of them in the NFL, hell, 64 quarterbacks, backups and starters could go out in week 12. Colin Kaepernick would not be signed. A dude is never, ever, ever playing in the NFL again. And I admire guys like Mike Freeman of Breach Report, who we've had on the sports talk show on Sports 1140 KHTK in Sacramento. Uh, It's not happening. I admire Jamel Hill and uh, the references and the pleads for him to – it's not happening. He's never going to get another job again. The NFL considers him nothing short of toxic. They won't touch him. And they'll make public the letters that they get and the emails that they get – And, oh, 400 people didn't show up today because of our interest in Colin Kaepernick. I think the New York Giants tried that line, or maybe it was the Baltimore Ravens. I can't remember which one of them. I think it was the Ravens because there was a a, a little bit of talk there, I remember. Oh, remember when Ray – that's right, it was Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis, we was in the back. We was about to sign Cap because Ray Lewis apparently has a front office job and he signs contracts for the Baltimore Ravens. But that's that's old news. Uh, I I just – I felt the need – to address that because it's going to be a constant conversation in the NFL every time a quarterback goes down. Cap's not playing, man. He's never playing again. And it kills me. I hate it. Uh, but it's true. 
And I think we all know that. In fact, I think Washington signed Mark Sanchez today. Mark Sanchez, the butt fumble guy. Incredible, man. Absolutely incredible. So we're going to segue here. I, I, I felt the need to mention that before we really got going and got started. Uh, I'm happy to bring in uh, my man, Kamara Williams. As I mentioned, he's an attorney in Florida, uh, went to school out here in California. He's a great friend of mine. We have conversations like this uh, all the time at the house. We have conversations like this on the phone. Uh, he's a fantastic follow on social media. You can find him on Facebook. And Kamara, we're going to start with this. Why does every election seem to boil down to Florida? Uh, because Florida's a bellwether state, and it's you know it's a state that was obviously was won by Barack Obama in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve, and it's weird because although Florida's been ruled by Republicans in the last thirty years, thirty plus years, um, it actually has more registered Democrats than Republicans. Can you believe that? It's so weird. Are Democrats not coming out to vote? Like, if there's more registered Democrats in Florida, like, how, how are how Senate seats and governor seats and all that stuff going to Republicans election after election? The Democrats don't come out to vote. Mm. I mean, you to answer your own question. It's just that simple. Yeah. Democrats, you know, every year there's a big push to registration, and, you know, uh, the numbers are close. I mean, Democrats outnumber Republicans as far as um, – Mature voters, and then as far as independents are concerned, independents tend to sway 53%. Some say 53%, some say 58%, but they tend to sway um, Democrat. And the fact of the matter is, even with that being said, um, so you're looking at it, the numbers favor um, Democrats to really dominate the state of Florida, but they don't. Um, it's just, you know, the Republican legislatures have a lot of grip on. The, uh, on the state house, and it includes the house and the senate, and then you have the governors. Obviously, the governor's mansion has been run by Republicans, and especially the last election has been run by Republicans in the last twenty years, and now it's going to be run at least for the next twenty-four another four years. So that's twenty-four years in counting. Um, you know, and, and and Florida Floridians like to elect governors back to back, so I don't see Santa's coming out of the governor's seat in four years. Mm. Um, that's just the way that works. Hey, I, I, I saw you write, uh, Gillum ran a typical Democratic campaign. What did you mean by that? Oh, boy. Okay. There's a lot to kind of push and pull with that. All right, so in the primary, I, I you know, chose Gillum because I thought he was the most a progressive candidate, um, and I thought he was a, uh, you know, I, I just thought he really spoke from a place where it was, re- it was recognizable for most Americans, right? Uh, most Americans don't come from politically elite background. They don't come from um, parents who um, were passing off legacy. They don't come from Ivy League background. They come from a background that you can recognize, you know, going to school, uh, working hard, uh, you know, some for for a lot of us, uh, the first to go to um, to college or get an advanced degree, and so it's something that you understand. Working a blue 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 collar parent, so you know he he, under, he understands people, and um, so I I often say that he ran a populist uh, he ran a populist uh, campaign in the primary, and then. 
soon as he ran a populist campaign, and then uh, he won. And I, I kind of had a feeling he was going to win because Floridians are – actually, people are dying for that. Um, they're dying for a populist candidate. And, and in a way, you know, not to diverge here, but Trump ran a populist campaign as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's a thirst for it. And then when he got the nomination, as this was obvious, he um, started to run into a, a um, you know, Democratic candidate, which I just thought was, really wasn't the smart thing. Did that turn people yeah. off? I don't think Democrats are self-aware that the Democratic Party. Yeah. I, I think they're – you know, people don't want a Democratic candidate. They want somebody who doesn't look like something that's familiar to them. And I think they ran him. You know, this Tipper Gore has a thing. She said, uh, or he said, uh, about almost 35 years ago, maybe 36 years ago, um, all politics are local. Right? Mm-hmm. You've you heard of that term of before? Course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, it's, the term means something because you know, it means that, you know, people don't want to seem like when they're electing, especially a governor, they want to seem like they're re- electing their next door neighbor. Even when Bush got elected in 2000, um, what a lot of people say, I feel like I can have a bear with him. And so you don't want to have a candidate that seems so far removed from you. You want to have a candidate that um, when it's an election that, you know, can be transformative, you want a candidate that you can understand. The only exception to that rule was Barack Obama, because he seemed like he was out of Wardley. You know, he seemed like he was uh, sent from Madison from heaven. I think it was a combination of a lot of different things that Barack Obama um, benefited from, timing being number one. But, uh, you know, most candidates, they want somebody that is a little earthy to them, that can that, that they can recognize, see, see themselves in. Uh, again, this goes into the phenomenon with Trump. A lot of people saw themselves in Trump, and they can understand. That's why they they understand. That's why they they kind of let go of some of the things that he says because you know he says what they're thinking. Um, and most people's thoughts are a little bit rug, um, rugged and not as you know uh, PR manufactured. But I, I just think when you look at Gillum, you know he became he ran too much as a national candidate for a governor's race, you know, on the cover of different magazines, uh, bringing celebrities. I mean, this is, and I don't want to be too heavy on the criticism here because I know a lot of people that ran his campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it can come off as a little bit as a hater. And I don't want that because actually, you know, the people that work on it are genuine people. I just, my criticisms were, I just don't think he ran populist campaign uh, for the last 90 days. I think he ran too much of a Democratic campaign. That's interesting. I, w- I want to detour here for a second because you mentioned a couple of things I'd like to touch on. You brought up President Obama, and then you mentioned uh, running kind of a national campaign. Al Gillum ran kind of a national campaign. And I know you're not as closely aligned with this one, but you're very politically astute. Do you think Beto did the same thing in Texas? Um, I think, yeah, I think the same thing. I think... Uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke, it's easy to get caught up into this way of there are people who are not as, you know, impressed with that. You know what I mean? They're not impressed with LeBron James wearing a Beto O'Rourke hat, mm-hmm. right? They're not impressed with, you know, pop figure cultures referencing your campaign when you're in El Paso, Texas. Like, you know, there's some people 
you know, they just want the candidate. They don't want all the other stuff that goes along with it, you know, and they want to know, are you going to represent me and not represent some other interests because other interests are now getting, you know, excited about your campaign. You know, I, I think when you're running for a statewide election, when you're running for a national election, that's okay. Right. But even still, you have to be careful about that because um, there's a, there's a heavy distrust of, you know, celebrities in a sense. It's weird because this country elected a celebrity, but then there's a heavy distrust of celebrities at the same time, right? right? And so, you know, it's a fine line, and you have to be careful about that fine line. Beto feels like another potential, uh, again, you, t- you talked about Barack Obama having a unique feel when he ran in 2008, 2012, and a lot of people were relating Beto to Barack Obama. And I was having some conversation with people around the midterms that I just don't think this country is ready to do the whole hope campaign Again, and that's what Beto feels like is it would be another hope campaign, whether it was in Texas or if he winds up uh, putting his name in the hat for uh, the presidency. Well, you know, the thing about Beto is that it sucks that he lost to Ted Cruz because, you know, and they're trying to do the same thing with Andrew. I've heard some things like after the election, they're saying, oh, well, he can run for president. And I think you have to run. You have to win your state election. You know, Barack, he won his state election for his Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he walked into it, really. But, you know, it's it's something to where, you know, he went the congressman. Um, once he became a congressman, he stopped losing. Right. And so, you know, you can't really it's not alignable. It's not apples to apples with the Beto comparison because um, he didn't beat Ted Cruz, which is actually, you know, Ted Cruz, even though he beat him, Ted Cruz is not a well-liked person nationally. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, he is so disliked, um, you know, even within his own party, you know. And so it's I, I feel like if, you're, if it's like this, before you can win the championship, you got to win a conference. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. You know, and yeah. so um, I, I think we got to calm down on Beto before, you know, we start casting him as the next this and next that. First, he has to show he's. You you know checked off a few boxes um, as far as in the column, and the same thing goes for Gillum. Um, and as far as Barack is concerned, I said Barack was an amalgamation of different things. Uh, the benefit of eight years of George Bush, um, people were so tired and exhausted of you know that entire White House um, that they were looking for something entirely different. And you know John McCain. He represented not a change in the guard, but, you know, just a changing of the shift, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, so it was more of the same. And Barack Obama, he looked different, he talked different, he smelled different. And people would latch on to that, um, which is really funny because, you know, 20 years later, not 20 years, but uh, now we're looking at 10 years later, you know, people have this fond memory of George Bush, you know, mm-hmm. when, yeah. when before he you know, his approval rating was under 50. Right. You know, and so... It he seems was, so lovable today. He seems so lovable. People don't remember, you know, he's the author of, you know, a, a multi-trillion dollar war and human crisis, in, in a human uh, uh, crisis in, in the Middle East, mm-hmm. right? Right. Because of his his policies and so humanitarian crisis, crises, rather. And so... I mean, but if I'm going to give a shout out to George Bush, I have to say he's the first American president to invest 
over fifty billion dollars, or fifty million dollars into the uh, Africa. So, um, but if we were, if we we're going to be a pessimist, I would say that that was more of a long-range view of the potential, um, you know, colonization of African, you know, uh, 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 raw raw material. But that's just me being this pessimist. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's just I, I think Barack Obama benefited from a large. Um, platform of George Bush, and he ran as the anti-Bush, you know. And if you remember John McCain, he, you know, he had this thing in a rally said "bomb, bomb, 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 bomb." All right, like you know, it was just, yeah, yeah. People were tired of that. People were tired of this war, and they're exhausted by it. You know, even in in Trump's election, I think what killed Hillary was Hillary came off as a globalist, right? And she came off as somebody who was almost like war hawkish. And I actually told people that prior leading up to the election, I said, what's hurting Hillary is that she seems like somebody who is going to be too heavy fisted when it comes to showing how tough she is, mm-hmm. you know, and that's unfortunate, you know, with, you know, women leaders, you know, it's unfortunate that it, it, we have this uh, uh, view of in order to show how tough a woman is, she has to she has to be as tough as a man or tougher. And I'm like, well, no, women, I think tough women show compassion, you know? And I think that's the thing that really would have turned turned off some people because they were like, well, I don't want a war hawk in, the, in office. And Trump, you know, he campaigned on the fact of, uh, well, I'm, I'm pulling out a lot of troops and we're, I'm not going to be a globalist. I'm going to be a nationalist, you know? And so that appealed to people as well, Right. So I mean, it's just a lot of it's a, it's it's a it's a ball of yarn, and it's not as easy a straight line as most people think politics is. But there's a lot that if people step away and they look at it, they can see. Okay, I can see the common thread here. Now that you're talking about this, I can't remember if it was in the presidential election or if it was you know way back in 08. But wasn't there a moment in Hillary's campaign where she got emotional, and that was like a big moment for her because everyone had seen her as so like rough and and yeah but she got I, I don't even remember the context of it i just remember her getting emotional and it being a really big deal yeah, it was in the primary and you know it was just i think it, yeah she started i forget what, what what happened about that you know but she um she, had, she was a little bit teary-eyed and it made news yeah right right <laughs> yeah but that's that should show you where how people viewed her they just you know it made news that she was um, compassionate, and I, I think, and the weird, it's the weird thing is, and he saw they try to run her as compassionate because they, they, you know, they um, talked about all the things she, amazing things she did, as, um, you know, uh, as part of the, uh, I forget what the program was, um, it was a children's advocacy program, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I don't want to disrespect the title, so I'm not going to go there, right, but I, I, but she, you know, she did a, a, a lot, a lot of great things as far as um, advocating for children and I, they try to run her as this person that is not this global hawk but i think the die has been cast on her fortunately or unfortunately and people have made their assessments on her but and and some and, and let's be if we're going to call it uh a spade a spade some of that too was a bit of sexism mm-hmm. right sure um you know i you see it and you see how they level levied credit criticism on her and i would argue to people like, well, okay, I understand your criticism of, of um, Hillary Rodham Clinton, but or Secretary Clinton, but 
the problem is some of those things are not even attributed to her. That's attributed to her husband. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like she wasn't even elected in office. She wasn't an elected official. She was the first lady, and you're getting mad at the Clinton policies. And I'm like, well, okay. That's not fair, really, because my, my wife is in HR, and she makes a decision to HR. And although I might do employment law, right, are you going to cast her decisions onto me? You know? So, you know, does that even seem fair? But, I mean, so you saw there's a heavy, heavy um, level of uh, sexism that kind of mixed in with you know, dissatisfaction of Hillary's uh, lack of appeal. But without right? Hillary, you know, we'd we'd have no we'd have no scandal, and we'd have no House of Cards. Well, that's undoubtedly true. But <laughs> here's the thing: here's the thing about it, right? Appeal does appeal does wonders. Okay, that's the thing. You know, when you have um, when you have the ability to, you know, appeal. To a larger base, it's seductive, right? Mm-hmm. Appeal, appeal can be seductive to people. It can make you, um, you know, forget all their flaws, almost. Like even with, let's say, let's go back with Barack, right? Barack, he's a very appealable person. But if, if I have I had my criticism of presidency, which I do, and I love um, President Barack Obama, I love Michelle Obama. You know, they're forever my first lady and president. But I have a healthy criticism of their presidency. Sure. Right. And but, you know, what helps Barack is that he's available. Right. He's available. He's he's appealable. He's somebody that you look at as, um, you know, you genuinely like, you know, and so that helps. How contentious you know? uh, did this race with DeSantis get? Um, it was pretty contentious, but you had it was a. It was a push on ideologies, and what you also saw, though, was it was a clear, clear illustration. And I think 2016 displayed in it. 2018 was an elaboration of that of people's ignorance on how politics work. You know, mm-hmm. I think, or just how the system works. And if there's if there's any example of how the school system has failed people. It should be how people understand politics, right, and how governments, right? The, the fact that people ca- cannot understand that a governor in the state of Florida, a governor cannot levy taxes, you know what I mean, based on the Florida Constitution. Mm-hmm. But that was, the, that was the biggest thing. Oh, he's going to hire – run my taxes. And these are not just, like, people like, uh, who, who didn't graduate high school. I'm talking about these are highly educated people that I had conversations with, people who are – um, captains of industry in their own business, respectively, right? People who are doing amazingly well in life and highly and, and, and went to college and whatnot, and they still had these ill-informed views on what the role of the government did. Um, and it was really just, it was depressing because you found yourself trying to educate people before you even get into like the candidates, per se. And I think this election was contentious because you were fighting ignorance for people. And, I, you know, going, and I know you were kind of leading into like with um, DeSantis, DeSantis and his, the, the, the racist innuendos that he made. Um, but, you know, the thing about it is, and this is my criticism with Plum, I think he leaned too much into that hmm. personally. I, I think he, he shouldn't have played into that. He shouldn't have um, get caught up in 
remarking on that, right? Because I don't think you can explain away race in a 30-minute conversation. And you're on the radio every day, D, right? Mm-hmm. Can you explain away race in, in, in your – in how long how long you're on the radio? No, it's hour, th- hours? three hours, like, and no. Yeah. You can't explain something, <laughs> you know, so as in-depth and, you know, subversive and cultural as race. Mm-hmm. And I think when you try to be the person to explain away a racial um, analogous term or something that is not even racially direct but racially parallel to people, you lose them. And I think Gillum got caught up in that um, with the monkeying it up, all, you know, stuff because, sure. yes – Here's the thing. DeSantis is a is an Ivy League educated lawyer, right? Naval Academy, all that other stuff, right? When you make terms and lawyers, we, you know, we are our words are our weapons, okay? And we, and especially when you're in front of public, we choose our our weapons very wisely. And when DeSantis said that, he knew what he was doing, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to choose a sword, and I'm going to see if Gillum's going to get a shield, or if he's going to take." He's going to get another sword, and he's going to du- duel me with it. And what did Gillum do? Instead of even, you know, even picking, instead of um, him getting a shield or, or a sword, you know, instead of getting a shield, he picked up a sword. What he rather should have done is he should have um, sidestepped it and went in another direction. He shouldn't even got into a duel with him. All right, and that's what the in, in, running in a high level campaign. Um, you got caught up explaining something that you really have no business explaining. You have no business explaining race, Gillen. You know? Yeah. How similar were, uh, obviously, again, watching from afar, were the races in Georgia and Florida? You know, it was depressing because it's interesting, but Brian Kemp, um, first of all, he stole that election. I don't care what anybody says. He stole that election. Um and it's interesting because you saw somebody in Stacey Abrams who I think is, is the truth, right? Yeah. And, you know, Ivy League educated powerhouse of, of an individual, not even as a woman, as an individual. And, you know, they did everything. They, Brian Kemp did everything he could to uh, make sure that he ensured his, you know, uh, that he, his win. First of all, a supervisor election, a state supervisor election should not even be running for governor. He should have resigned from that seat eight months ago, mm-hmm. 10 months ago, right? But, you know, you saw the purging of the record, 1.4 million people being purged of the records. You saw the, uh, you know, um, the shutting down of 214 million, 214, um, uh, 214 uh, uh, voting sites, mm-hmm. right? All in designated minority areas, right? You saw those where you saw people had to drive like two hours, you know, just for just to vote, right? Just to vote, right? You saw the, the just the, the the mixing up of voting records. You saw everything that was done, the voter suppression that, that happened. But if you're, I know, and what you're leaning into is saying, you know, this the parallel, the interesting moment we had briefly with, you know, where we had a dream of both having um, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams, you know, possibly being the governor of two southern states, black people um you know i i think it's interesting it's i think the comparison stops there um i think stacy abrams had she be had she run in florida it would have been a different race okay how so you know um 
I, I just, I, I don't know. I, just from from afar, looking at the way the race is run, you know, I just think, you know, and again, I don't want to cast aspersions on being critical of people in the Florida Democratic Party because I have relationships in there. Um, but you know, I, I think she was. I think she's a dynamic candidate. I think Gillum's a good dynamic candidate, obviously. Um, you know, but I don't know. I'm not sure if. She would have leaned into the the racial argument. She would have avoided it. In the same way. I think she would have Mayweathered that thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you was uh, you, know? you said you said Georgia was stolen. Was Florida stolen? Florida was not stolen. Yes. Yes and no. But I would say the trickle down effect of Florida being stolen goes into the um, the bifurcation of all the the. Uh, uh, Different differing ballots throughout the different counties, you know, and the confusion of voters, you know. Yeah. I would say that it was interesting what happened in Broward County, you know, and, and people like, you know, Dr. Brenda Snipes, who was a Democrat, um, but she was appointed there by George, by, um, not George, but uh, by Jeb Bush in 1998, you know. And so, you know, you notice. Uh, Rick Scott, who were casting aspersions of fraud on Democratic voters, hasn't made a peep about it since because he, you know, because it got confirmed, you know. So um, I don't know. I want to say it was stolen. What I would say, what was stolen from Florida was an opportunity to do something amazing because, you know, case in point with Broward County and even um, with uh, Dade County. In, in Gillum's race, because I want to make sure we were very particular. Gillum's and, San, and Senator uh, Senator uh, um, uh, 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 Bill Nelson are two different races, mm-hmm. right? Because I want—I'll get to Senator Nelson. I think that was stolen. Okay. Gillum's race, not that wasn't stolen. Um, Gillum, Gillum's race, he came up short because we didn't come out. You know, you had uh, the sick the. The state average in that race, in, in this in uh, voting race, was 62% um, state average. In Broward County alone, the second biggest county in Florida, they voted at 56.9%, right? Um, in Dade County, they voted at 57%, 57.1%, right? I think I saw a stat there, which is the biggest county, Dade County. And for those who are your listeners, uh, Dade County encompasses uh, Miami, uh, um, basically it's Miami, okay, and all the other surrounding little small pockets and cities around Miami. Um, Day County and Broward County encompasses Fort Lauderdale. So those are the one or two biggest counties in Florida. Um, in Miami particularly, 616,000 registered voters decided to stay home. Think about that. Andrew Gillum lost the, the election by 33,000 votes. And 616,000 voters in Dade County alone decided to stay home. If had they just voted according to state average, this wouldn't even be um, a conversation. But, you know, Senator Nelson, the election was, I believe, I think you can make a stronger argument it was stolen because I think he ended up losing to Rick Scott by 10,000 votes. And um, you saw that Broward County, you know, again, Dr. Brenda Snipes um, fumbling the, the football at the goal line um, failed to upload the her results from the election because you know she ended up uploading it two minutes late because she couldn't figure out how to upload her 
her uh, her new uh, you know her her counter votes, mm-hmm. and you saw you know if you're looking at the numbers, there's a strong mathematical case that he would have picked those ten thousand votes. He actually would have won by five hundred votes. So Bill Nelson has really some steam for what happened in Broward County. But again, I, I would say he asked me if the election was stolen overall. I would say that it's the system that stole the elections from the Democrats because Republicans have had a screwed up electoral system within the state of Florida for years. People just became notice, noticing it back in 2000. But I wrote an article. I think, yeah, I don't know if you read the article I wrote. Orlando um, Sentinel, right? Right, yes, correct. Mm-hmm. Orlando Sentinel. I said it's interesting, you know, because in 2000, we became aware of how just jacked up our voting system is, and we haven't done anything to, to change it. But why haven't we changed it? Because it's worked for the people still in power. It's worked. The Republicans who are in control of the state house and you know and the governor's mansion for thirty some years, twenty plus years in state you know in legislation, the governor's mansion. Um, why would you change something that has worked for you? Why would you want to make it more uniform? Why would you want to make it easier for people to vote? Again, because you see the numbers, you see that Democrats have a hard, high, have a larger margin of registered voters. So you don't want to make it easy on these people to vote. You want to make it confusing. You want to make it frustrating. You want to make voter education not a thing. And so you want to make Broward County, who continued, you know, people just now getting tuned in, but Broward County has continued to be, you know, the the, the slow kid in the back of the class for every election season for the last, you know, three election cycles. It just is very frustrating, but I would say the system failed the Democrats. You could follow you, me, D? Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask, could you take that analogy you just made to Florida and equate it to the entire country and the electoral college system? Yeah. So again, um, it's looking at it, you look at it and you look at how the electoral college system is based. I should, I'm actually a fan of electoral college, to be frank with you. Okay. I don't think anything's wrong with that. I think the popular vote is, I think individual smart people are stupid. You know, you get people in the crowd and it's like the collective intelligence IQ just drops <laughs> in people. But if you get them, separate them and you, you get them one-on-one, you see that they're actually very intuitive. But, you know, it's a, it becomes a mob mentality. And I think uh, the problem is, you know, in the electoral college, in a sense, was supposed to protect people from themselves. A lot of people don't understand that. Again, that's a big cry of, oh, let's move into the popular vote. Let's move into the popular vote. And, you know, you, you want to get be careful about that because the popular vote is really, if you're, what you're saying is, that means only 50 cities in the country would matter. Pretty much. You follow me? Yeah, yeah pretty much. 50 cities. Yeah, 50 cities in the country matter. L.A., Chicago, New York, you know, even Sacramento is a top 20 media market, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so you, you're looking at it, Orlando, whatever, like it just, you wouldn't care about what's happening in Wyoming. You wouldn't care about what's happening in South Dakota, right? Because they wouldn't matter. And so it'd be based primarily on just popular destinations rather than a than um, forcing people to actually, you know, actually campaign. What killed Hillary, again, we, I'm just pivoting back to Hillary. I know it sounds weird, but what killed Hillary in the election is because she, she uh, uh, did not campaign in Michigan. You know, she didn't step foot in Michigan. Right. You know, that's. If, if we switch from a popular vote to electoral college, it's going to be a lot more than that. They're, these people are only going to go to like 10 states. Yeah. They're not going to go to the 50 states. Right. You know, and yeah. so um, the failure for people to understand the uh, um, electoral college. What I think what's the failed system is that, you know, voting should be a national holiday. Right. If Columbus Day should be, is a holiday, then voting uh, should be a national holiday. You should have to go to work to go vote. 
right? Um, I think you should automatically be registered to vote upon you being a naturally, naturally born citizen. You know, I think um, it should be more of a culture in our country of educating voters. It should be something to where it is back when we were growing up. And I don't even know if this is, you know, my kids are young right now, so we'll find this out in about next 10 years. But um, they taught us how to write a, write a checkbook, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it was, it was uh, the, uh, what is it called? Home ec- economic class. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Balance the checkbook, learn how to write a check. What goes in the memo line? Yeah, I remember that. Right. How to mail off, how to mail, uh, send a, send a, a letter of correspondence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's little things, right. You know, you, you read things now that, you, you, know, you know, the millennials or whatever the generation below us or two generations below us, it, they can't even send off a, a piece of mail because they don't know how mm-hmm. they can't write a check because they don't know how. So we've lost something. If we've lost something just in fundamentals on how to be an adult, how do you think people have lost something about fundamentals on how to understand our basic tenets of our democracy? And so you look at it, it's um, the system has failed our country because unless you privately on your own look into politics, there's a failed understanding of how politics works. You even saw it with a lot of new voters who started jumping on the burning bandwagon in 2016. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to them about politics, you know, they didn't understand it. They were just had these you know, these wide um, birth, you know, generalizations about um, how policy should work. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work that way. It's not as, it's not as cut and dry. You know, Bernie's not going to go in and give free college to everybody yeah. because he can't do that. Right. Yeah. And that's not going to, that's not going to happen. But people didn't understand that, you know, and they didn't understand that, you know, the push and pull of being in the legislature, of being in, in the Senate, you know, it was just, I have these ideas. And I, and I want these ideas implemented, you know? Yeah. Um, so. I want to, I, I, you've been more than generous with your time, man. Hopefully you're not charging me those, uh, those, uh, nah, lawyer, lawyer nah, by the hour fees. Well, I guess I you I'm talking like too much, like, you know, I, I know politics can tend to be boring. You can tell, you know, but I love talking about it, man. This is a long form discussion, man. That's what this podcast is. It's where we just kind of, uh, stretch our legs out, man, and talk. That's what this is all about. So there's, there's, there's no answer. That's too long, man. If people are tuning in, they're tuning in because this is uh, what they want to hear. This is the audience that we've built, man, that we're so grateful for. Um, what get? We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at this because I really feel like, I mean, we could go on another hour. There's still plenty more to talk about, including that uh, prison reform bill. I mean, we can save all that for another day. But I'm curious yeah. what you think Georgia and maybe more importantly, Florida uh, and perhaps the midterms overall mean for Donald Trump's presidency in 2020. Uh, I think it it certifies his presidency in 2020, but also it makes him not as bulletproof, okay. right? And it, so it's a weird. That's kind of a weird dichotomy of thoughts, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Democrats won the House, and they also won. Um, I think they turned they flipped seven out of eight of the governors' races, you know. And so, I even if you look at Texas. You know, Beto losing Texas, but it shouldn't have been. Texas is called a ruby red state, right? And, you know, Beto coming so close, even like within, I forget that, I don't know the number, you know, what Beto did, but the fact that it was a competitive race, it shows you that it's, it's changing. Even Florida, 33,000 votes is, you know, not enough to start puffing on your chest like, oh, we, you know, we clobbered them, right? Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where if Trump is not careful, you know, he can slip. But I also believe 
I don't see anybody in the Democratic Party who's going to come up and beat him in 2020 because Trump is willing to – not because the lack of talent or you know whatever. I believe because Trump is such a formidable opponent that – you know, he's not going to just give up that presidency without getting into a fist fight. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're going to run against him, you have to be willing to get your nose bloody. Yeah. You have to be willing to pull out a knife, you know, because he's going to pull out a gun. You know, he's going to do so. He's going to talk about your mother on the debate stage, you know, and you have to be willing to get into a dirty fight with him, you know, because he's not losing. Trump doesn't place there. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's going to use every advantage of the bully pulpit of the presidency to to win. And what people, Democrats don't understand, and I often have this conversation with them, is that you may not like Trump, but his base is loyal to him. Yep. You know, not only that, Trump has converted people who are never Trumpers into like saying, "I heard I've heard Republicans say this. No, I didn't vote for him in 2016, but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give him a shot in 2020 because he's doing the things that I I I want." Mm-hmm. And one could be one could state. As, as much as as much as we do not like Trump and we don't like his policies, once you state that he's actually the president that's actually kept his promises to his base outside of the wall, sure, right, sure, you know he's kept eighty percent of his promises, and you know they you know and you have Republicans who are you know you call them corporate Republicans who say you know what he's done he's done everything I w- I would want him to do in a Republican presidency. You could argue he's running a successful Republican presidency. Take away his Twitter account, he's running a, a successful Republican presidency. But is his Twitter account really a hindrance to him? Is it seems no, that it, his base not. doesn't? Yeah, okay. His base doesn't hurt him, and that's the thing about Democrats. Um, you, I saw I, I stopped over a year and a half ago. I stopped talking about on social media his Twitter account. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about what he says on Twitter. I don't talk about what he says in the press because it doesn't help. Right? People know he's stupid. People know he says stupid things, right? And so you highlighting his stupidity doesn't win you any points. Sure. Right? And so, you know, even this last thing where you, in California you guys are having these fires, and, you know, I'm crazy to go back to Cali. You know, it's my, um, you know, it's my second home, you know. And so, um, you know, when he says you got to rake the leaves in the floors, he's dumb, <laughs> right? No, Nobody with any common sense would say rake the leaves and – you know, that's going to stop forest fires. Yeah. How, do you, how do you rake the forest? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you, just, you can't get caught up in that. And, um, you know, going to 2020, I just – I think he's going to get reelected um, until proven otherwise. I would like to be wrong. You know, I, I think um, if Democrats are winning the House and the governor's uh, mansion, I think uh, – you know, it makes it, his position a little bit more tenuous because they can maybe attack him on, on front set or not um, as, you know, that, you know, maybe go after his taxes or things like that nature or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, but it, I will say if he we, if we would have won Florida, I, I would have put his presidency in jeopardy. Okay. Florida is a state. Yeah. And Florida is a state that, that turns presidencies. There's 29 electoral votes and... Um, you know, the, the thing of what was so important about this pres- this um, governor's race, because whoever controls the, um, the governor's mansion really then controls the basis of the uh, uh, of the appointments and the, and the party and then the supervisor elections. And you know, what I mean, yeah. And so they can they can really help 
it and and, it put, and thus they can sort in ways they can block Republican. Um, if they had won the mansion, they could have blocked Republican grassroots organization because they don't have a lead. They don't have a top person at the top of this um, party to govern that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's it was a state that had Trump lost that st- the state, it would have put his position in presidency a little more tenuous. The fact that he won, it certifies that he's going to win Florida in two thousand in 2020 because i don't see DeSantis screwing scooting the pooch on that one they they were robbed um kill and cheat you know rob steal kill cheat Mm -hmm. whatever you know to to um ensure that florida is going to go in the pocket of the presidency and i don't see them losing unless you have a candidate transformed like barack obama where he kills people so much that you can't even steal an election from him Mm -hmm. you can't make like Barack, the thing with fasting Barack up in 2008, 69 million votes, over 69 million votes, because he, he mollywhopped people so much that they couldn't even, like, spurge the votes a little bit. Yeah. Right? And the same thing in 2012, he's 65 million votes. Now, he got 4 million votes in 2008, but it was still the two highest grossing votes in, the, in U.S. presidential history. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's still a lot of, it's still a lot of voters who um, believed in this, in this presidency, so, or in that presidency. So it's hard to really, to, to steal an election when something is, when you're, when you're blowing your competition out. Yeah. You know, if we can end on this note, Damien, mm-hmm. sports, uh, a sports analogy, uh, the Kings, right? We talked about the Kings and the, two, the 2001 Kings and, and how they, you know, they, some, some blame the ref stealing, Game seven or game six away from the Kings, right? Absolutely. Right. Well, it had the Kings taking care of business, right, in game four. Mm-hmm. And, um, or even, you know, in just different games in the series where they blew, they took care of their business. You can't, you won't have the rest. You wouldn't have um, the opportunity to steal it. You wouldn't have the opportunity to steal it. Yeah. Right. Free so. throws, it doesn't matter the free throw disparage disparage or whatever free you know, throws free tips throw. to robert ory the whole thing it doesn't matter yeah. right it don't matter if you're doing what you're supposed to do you know and so the warriors they beat people not because you know uh they have more free throws than people they beat people because they beat people yeah yeah that's a good analogy right there man i love you so much man i think that you man you were super gracious with your time man i appreciate it we got to do this again when you uh when you come back to cali and visit Oh yeah, man. You know, and anytime, man. I enjoy it. I enjoy you let me talk for thirty minutes about politics. Nobody, my wife doesn't even let me do that. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you, my man. Thanks again, brother. Have a great day. You too, man. That's my guy right there, man. These types of conversations. That's just kind of a it. Like that's you know, I've seen these conversations go till two, three, four, five, six o'clock in the morning, man. When people get passionate and start having these. Uh, these conversations turn to debates. He he made the sports analogy there at the end that segues into a sports conversation that just gets as heated and as as, uh, uh, passionate as the political one does, man. So he's a fantastic dude. I can't recommend enough. Uh, Search him out on Facebook, Kamara, C-A-M-A-R-A. Kamara Williams, man, he noted during our conversation, he uh, wrote some guest columns for the Orlando Sentinel Uh, He's a brilliant individual, as you heard right there. He's a lawyer in Florida. He's a fantastic friend. Uh, So, again, check him out on Facebook. You can keep up with all of his political work. Uh, And just, I mean, he's, he's, some people are really good at social media. Me, personally, I'm terrible at it. If I could, I would hire somebody to do my social media for me and make me more 
witty or clever or, or take a bunch of pictures of me and post them on Instagram. I, I just, I'm not good at it. Kamara's really, really good at it, particularly on Facebook where he can write really long form stuff. And I think that's how he got noticed by the Orlando Sentinel was his uh, tremendous work that he was just doing on Facebook. Uh, the Orlando Sentinel saw him, brought him in as a guest columnist. Uh, a couple of things that Kamara said that are really standing out for me. The uh, an opportunity stolen line has really stuck out to me. And I, I think the analogy that he made there at the end with the Sacramento Kings in, you know, 2002 was perfect. And, and especially as he brought it back and equated it to the Warriors. You can't have something stolen unless you're in a position to have it stolen. And we can talk about the tip back to Robert Ory. Uh, we could talk about the missed free throws in game seven. Like they 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 presented, if, if you're of the mindset, that the NBA stole a championship from Sacramento or stole, in that case, a conference a championship from Sacramento. That was because Sacramento put themselves in a position for it to be stolen. The Golden State Warriors never put themselves in a position for something to be stolen. And that's the reference he was making with Barack Obama and bringing it back to what is happening current day. Uh, there were some missteps in Florida, as he noted, and stolen or otherwise, that's why. It was because of the missteps. You were put in a position where, yo, we could, look what we could do right here. Oh, okay, this is a little bit closer than people thought. Oh, okay, he's not the next uh, hope. He's not the next change guy. Oh, okay, we, we, we could snatch this away a little bit. And I think there were a lot of questions headed into the midterms a few weeks ago. And I know this is the first time we've really uh, kind of uh, dove into this whole thing is it, it, there were missteps across the board. There were a lot of questions headed into the election. Okay. What would the turnout be? Okay. It feels like everybody is galvanized, but like who's really galvanized. That was my biggest question heading into the midterms was you're hearing about how the, uh, the democratic party they're 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 rejuvenated. You're hearing young voters are coming out for the first time and, it's like, but who's saying that? Like, because what would it mean if I went out there and I said, man, I'm so excited about voting. Got to get out there and vote. Like, what does it mean coming from me? Like, I've voted in every presidential election I've been legally allowed to vote in. Like, I, I haven't missed one. So what does it mean saying I'm excited? Like, if you went out there and you voted, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably passionate about politics or race or some of the different things that we talk about here. You probably registered to vote. You probably voted in multiple multiple elections, midterms or otherwise. So what does it mean coming from us? Every listener listening to this podcast goes, I'm so excited about voting. Well, if you if you voted before, that doesn't really mean anything. The people you needed to hear from were the people who were like, man, I, I, skipped, I skipped 16 because I hated Hillary. I hated the Democratic Party. I hated Donald Trump. I hated the Republican Party. I wasn't going to vote. I couldn't vote for either one of them. They both made me sick. Yo, I've said this before. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. I support Colin Kaepernick to no end. But he made a huge misstep not voting and an even bigger misstep announcing he he hasn't voted by publicly saying, oh, I'm not going to vote. Like, nah, brother, voting does matter. And I, I get... I get you talking about oppression. I get, I get. I heard everything you said and completely understand it. Voting is still important. Voting isn't the be-all, end-all to everything. But in many cases, it's the first step. You just heard Kamara say right there, Florida and Gillum win that election. Trump's presidency is in major doubt come 2020. 
His second term is in major doubt. We've said this for months. Pretty confident Donald Trump's getting reelected. Now, I'm not saying, you know that's not what I want. I'm sure that's not what most of you want. And if it is, good for you because he probably will be. And I'll, I'll pose another uh, another question that we were talking about there just briefly with Kamara's, and it's been my concern for it's been my concern for a year now. I feel like if Donald Trump wasn't going to get reelected, we would know today who was going to beat him. It can't be split across. Oh, it could be Beto. It could be Gillum. It could be no, like no, uh, uh-uh. uh. We would know. When Barack Obama walked off that stage at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, it was easy to look at him and go, if it's not Hillary, and in my eyes it was Hillary, but if it's not Hillary, that dude right there is the next president of the United States. Right there. It was so obvious. It was so crystal clear. Who is it now? Because... If everybody listening right now answers that question and just blurts out a name, most of y'all are going to say something different. A couple, I mean, if you split the percentages, it's 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 going to be across. Everybody's going to have a different answer. We don't know, and that's a problem. Because what was people? What, what was uh, the the problem after? To, in 2016, I ended the campaign. Well, I don't like either one of them. Well, it's the lesser of two evils. Now, we know many of your selection is the lesser of two evils. is probably wrong. But it doesn't matter to, doesn't matter for us. Only, only matters to his base. And his base, fiercely loyal. We've had this discussion on a number of occasions uh, on various podcasts in our archives. His base does not care. He told, Finland told me that they raked their leaves. Finland says, nah, man, we never said that. You know who doesn't care? Donald Trump's voters. Donald Trump's base. Oh, it's so, oh, California's burning and it's your fault. You know who doesn't care? You know why he doesn't care about California? You already know why he doesn't care about California. It's a blue state. He doesn't care. If we had been a red state, oh, what a tragedy. He would have been, if we, if, if, if California had been a red state, Donald Trump would have been out here uh, uh, blowing on the fire himself. He would have been throwing water on it with a cup. But it's a blue state, so he doesn't care. Not only do I not care people are dying, not only do I not care an, an, an entire town in which I'm going to get the name wrong is completely gone and no longer exists, I'm going to trash them while standing on their ashes. And not care. Because I ain't winning this damn state anyways. So F each and every one of you. Dude doesn't care. And his base doesn't care. And that's what it all boils down to. Appreciate all the new subscribers. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, uh, wherever you're at. So greatly appreciated. We've gotten a huge influx 
of Spotify listeners, man. That's pretty awesome. We're really thankful. It took a while for us to get on that platform, so we're happy we're finally there. We're happy so many of you are taking advantage of that. If you want to reach out, DamienBarling at me.com. You can get me on Twitter at DamienBarling. You can get me on Facebook at Damien Barling. I'm going to reactivate some of those Be Conscious pages here right near the start of the year uh, and get a bunch of new information, uh, old clips from old shows. We're going to start uploading the podcast to YouTube as well. Some exciting things uh, coming for Be Conscious uh, in 2019 that I'm really excited about. And all of that is because of you and how many of you subscribed and downloaded and have turned out to to make this podcast the most popular podcast, the most downloaded and subscribed to podcast on our network. And for that, uh, I am greatly, greatly appreciative of it. So again, thank you so much uh, for being with us here today. Uh, leave a review or or hit the five stars if you haven't yet. Uh, we got a big influx of those over the course of the last couple of weeks. Again, it helps us get noticed across these various platforms. Uh, appreciate you again so much for being with us. I'm Damian Barling. We'll see you next week.